Welcome to Making Pondo and Talking Pondo. Talking Pondo is a podcast where we pick out two movies each week and talk about them in detail. Making Pondo is a podcast where we talk to people we've made films with and we discuss all their experiences on set. Today on Making Pondo, we feature Jeffrey Notkin, who has acted in two of our films as well as done set decoration, makeup artist, and a slew of other jobs. Hey, Marty. Hey, Cliff. So I guess we should introduce our podcast, uh, Making Pondo. Yeah, I think this is a good time at the beginning. Hello, I'm Marty Catola. I'm Cliff Campbell. And we're indie filmmakers. Uh, We've made five feature films, and we're going to be talking on our new podcast here with the various people we've worked with on the movies with, all of the different actors, producers, crew members, pretty much everybody, slowly over the course of as many episodes of this as we can crack out that's right uh all of these people will have have worked with our production company and us um pondo enterprises which is why we call it making pondo Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to talk about tales from the set and uh, their art and how uh, their experiences with us and their experiences in general with their art so should be an interesting conversation if you're into indie filmmaking or filmmaking in general Exactly. Uh, we feel a lot of these experiences are universal. You know, we, we like to watch and listen to other people talk about making movies. And there's always those moments where you're like, yep, same things happen to us, although on a different scale. So we figured, yeah. well, we can share our experiences and it would be a good, just a good way to uh, not only reminisce about it, but to kind of make a historical record of mm-hmm. what it's like to make these films. Yeah, but I mean, if you learn something from it and somehow avoid some of the pitfalls that we ran into, even better. Today we have uh, Jeff Notkin. Jeffrey yes. Maloicious Notkin. Greetings, programs. How did you know my middle name? <laughs> I've been keeping that secret all these years. It's a part of the long list of Pondo names. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Would be a podcast in and of itself almost. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. For those who don't well, know, we give. We should explain what that is to the people. Yeah, we give we give Jeff uh, we give Jeff nicknames. It started with um, when he did the music soundtrack. We called him T. Jeff Notkin after uh, T. Bone Burnett from mm-hmm. uh, the guy, the sound guy for the Coen Brothers. And then it was Don Don Dela Notkin. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> there's so many nicknames we've given him over the years in email. It's hilarious. And, they usually and then I, I adopted that. I liked that so much that in our in our voluminous correspondence of probably thousands of emails over the years, I started this thing where I would sign my name with a different Pondo signature every time. And you'll be very amused to know that I have actually kept a list of all of them. <laughs> oh, and fantastic. so I'll just read off a few. Here we've oh, got nice. uh, Hampton Pondo Starchild Fancher. That was something to do with Blade Runner. <laughs> P. Notkin Ondo, Pondo Churchill, P.G. Notkin House, Pondo P.G. Woodhouse, and hundreds. Pondo La Mancha. Pondo oh, La Mancha. I like this. Pondo Atreides Starchild. I guess we're talking about <laughs> Dune. Maybe. But yeah, I don't know why, but I tell you, the list goes on and on and on. Buzz Pondo Year. Oh, it's Buzz pretty Pondo good year. ones. It's maybe one. not a November Pondo. That was a year ago. That was last November. <laughs> Yeah, I've always yes, had the, very silly. the generic Marty Pondo because it was an easy email to remember. And Cliff's long been Dr. Pondo, which is the whole story behind that. And now now we got to get Eric some sort of Pondo name to really bring yeah. him. 
into the fold oh. here. <laughs> the power yeah, he probably more. feels really left out. I didn't think right. about that. <laughs> I think, I think we tried to give him one at some point, but it just didn't stick. Didn't Eric's stick. not a nickname type of dude. <laughs> here, like, he's not really, is he? He's quite a serious he's, fellow. He's quite a serious fellow. And those, those of you who have heard his podcast, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Um, he's very, you know, Eric, mm-hmm. I, I love Eric, but he's um, he's a very serious guy. Eric is, the, and Eric is the reason that we uh, found you, because it leads that's, into our first question. You know, how, oh, how did you find us and start working with us? And well, Eric is a big part of that. That's so true. I there we wouldn't we wouldn't be friends and and creative partners were it not for my old show, Meteorite Men. The Tucson Science Fiction Convention, which we lovingly call Tuscon, and in particular Eric. And the story goes back to, I suppose it was 2010. I think it was when Meteorite Men was in its second season and we we're airing on science and discovery. And I was living in Tucson and I was invited by the Tucson Sci Fi Convention to be one of their guests that year. And they had established a science track at the sci-fi convention. But also there there always was a big crossover between meteorite men and comic book people, which made me very happy. And particularly season one has a lot of comic book imagery in it. And so I enthusiastically accepted and was asked to do a presentation about adventure TV, science meteorites, the, how we made the adventure show, that kind of thing, and relate it to sci-fi and comic books a bit, which... I have no trouble doing. And I, I met Mar- Marty and I met briefly and Eric and I met briefly and I had a great time. And then we didn't, we didn't really spend a lot of time together, but we met. And I, I always remember seeing Eric darting around in his suit and his, his fedora, <laughs> and his long yeah. coat. And I go, that guy looks just like the shadow. What an interesting <laughs> character. And so we I had a great time. Loved the convention. Wonderful convention. It's been very good to us, of course, as film producers also. And so I was invited back the next year. And there's this guy, Eric, again, running around with his fedora and everything. And I go, oh, there's that interesting guy from, from last year. And he was doing some of the PR. And I'd been asked to organize one of the panels. I brought my friend Susie Corbell, filmmaker from New Mexico, over as a guest and we decided that we were going to do this little photo shoot out on the lawn of the hotel. And Eric just just leapt in like a commando. He goes, oh, I'll assist with this. Let, we need the lights over there. And let's get a bounce card over here and bring this up. And I go, wow, this guy's a real pro. And so we just we chatted and we hung out a bit. And then, I don't know, some weeks went by, some months went by, and, and I found his card. And I go, I'm going to send that guy hello. <laughs> so I, I just I sent him an email and I said, I hope this isn't too bizarre. I, I know we don't really know each other, but you just seem like a really interesting guy. If you ever go into a film screening or anything interesting, let me know. And and he wrote back immediately and uh, and I said, are, are you still up? Can I give you a call? And he, he called me. We had this long conversation about filmmaking and comics and sci fi. So that, that was the that was the that was the initial meeting. The fun part of the story is was when you guys, I guess, through Eric invited me to do a little cameo in Revenge of Zoe. And the idea, of course, because it's set in the comic book world, a lot of the action takes place in a comic book store, and I had fairly recently published a memoir about my life in the comics biz 
called My Incredibly Strange and Amazing Real Life Adventures in the World of Comic Books. Very short, snappy title. And I, I guess it was Eric's idea that I would come into the store and I would buy a copy of my own book in, in the shop. And we thought, oh, that'd be funny. Go, yeah, yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. That'll be great. And I went to the table read, which was in the comic store, in Charlie's comic book store, which is sadly no longer there. It was a Tucson institution for many years. And that was the first time that I'd met the cast. And I was blown away by the script, by how good the script was. And I'm sitting there at this table read. I only had a handful of lines. Probably didn't really need to be there for the table read. But I'm really glad that I was. You were were late in the read too, yeah. I really enjoyed it. And I'd say for the whole second half of the table read, I just couldn't wait for it to be over because I wanted to rush up to Eric and go, Eric, this is such a great script. Could you, would you ask the guys if they might be interested in taking me on to help with this film in some way? And the embarrassing part about this is I hadn't read the whole script before the table read. I meant to, but I only, I read my bit, I don't know, a page and skimmed through a few things. So I didn't know how good the script was until I actually saw the cast do it live. And so I, I colored Eric afterwards with great enthusiasm and said, Man, this is just great. I just, I love this script. This is a really great cast. Go, go ask the guys. Do you think they might be interested? And we're just, we're just complimenting Eric a few minutes ago, but you can imagine Eric very underplaying it and, and saying something like, oh yes, well, um, okay, Jeff, I'll I'll be glad to ask them. I'd be surprised if they said no. I said, well, go ask them now. (laughs) <laughs> well, everybody's here. I don't want to have to wait. So anyway, so, so that so that was the story. That was just a few days before we started filming, wasn't it? Yeah. And I kind of came in and started inserting myself into all kinds of things like, oh, look at that poster. I could fix that. Or here, look, oh, we yeah. need some more comic oh, books that's, here. That's my favorite, I think. That's when I knew it was going to work because we put that poster up. We had this black and white poster in the film, the Frenzy film. And it had this, when it was printed, it had this white edge around it. Mm-hmm. And Marty and I are doing 9,000 things at once. And so it just doesn't, we don't stop to take the moment to say, you should probably cut that border off of that. And Jeff walks up and goes, my God, uh, you've got to let me cut the border off of that poster. And I'm like, yeah, oh, right, please do. Yes. Fantastic. And he went and cut it off and then put it back up. And it was like, oh, that's night and day. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it was, that's when it was like, oh, this is going to work. He gets, he gets it. Works oh, like that's so do. nice. That was the yeah. beginning, wasn't it? And I yeah, had a like day one of the shoot. I day think. One. Yeah. yeah, and we found a cutting board, and I uh-huh. we found an exacto knife, and it was a it was a giant poster, and it was a little was board. Like, and there's actually I a photo of me doing that. I, I vividly remember that trying to cut this massive poster a little bit at a time <laughs> with this very small exacto knife on a very small cutting board in the location while everyone's getting set up. And I felt like, God, are you being a bit nitpicky? Aren't no. you? They seem to be no. pretty pretty keen about about tidying up some art things and and then off we went yeah Yeah. it was amazing the art and set decorator had arrived (laughs) and we didn't even know it yet (laughs) me neither i thought i was only gonna do a cameo and years (laughs) later i'm still here remember that british guy that came to do the cameo we could never get rid of him he was always hanging around and then he brought his camera and started taking location photos what a nuisance notkin in the shotgun that's what we call that I got a oh. notkin in my shotkin. Can we get him to back up, please? Oh, gosh, we've, how many times have I heard that? We've told Afton, <laughs> and uh, there in the B camera, we can still see Jeff clicking off the lap. Or you can hear the, you can hear the, 
<laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> yeah, I also learned that pretty quickly that when uh, when when Cliff yells action, you're not allowed to take any more pictures. <laughs> and even if you do, the actors knew at that point to wait for the clicks to stop because you can see them like they know as well. And it's like, really? okay, yeah, we all fell into a sync yeah, with each other pretty quick. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. I never knew. Well, that. I guess. Yeah. Well, and you, Marty, you would have noticed that when you're doing the <laughs> editing. But I, I must say, I got, I got better. I think when we were, when we were shooting "Love Song" of William Shaw, I probably only got, I was only told to move on a few times. I would say yeah. less than five. We thought Whereas we were earlier. Make, we thought we were going to make some big blooper reel, but it turned out there was only maybe like two or three instances this time. And it's like, oh, oh I, guess, I guess we don't have a whole. You were so busy <laughs> doing. I mean, you had so much more to do on the second film. Mm -hmm. You were so much busier. You just. I don't think you had the time really to to roam like you did the first one, right? And, um, I mean, Jesus, going you were running, you and Biscuit were running back and forth between those two houses alone was just a, a Herculean task for the two of you. Yeah, and that was a that was a very interesting location film experience for all of us. I think that we, our our very good friends Jessica Stone, whom we we call Biscuit, that's her nickname very kindly offered the use of her home as one of the locations for Love Song. And then we, one of my jobs, as you you lads will well remember, was to find a pottery wheel for yeah. Billy to, to throw the pots on. And I thought, well, no big deal. I'll just buy one and then sell it when we're done. <laughs> Thinking it would be, I mean, how much would a pottery wheel cost? Like 40 or 50 bucks? No, like seven or $800 uh -huh. if you can find one in the state of Arizona. So I looked and looked and looked and I've finally found somebody who had one that we could borrow, but it was far away. And she said, oh, it's very heavy. You'll need several guys to lift it. And I was trying to figure out the logistics of how are we going to, she's a professional potter. She needs it. I can't take it away for weeks at a time. How are we going to do this? And then, and then it turns out that, that Biscuit says, oh yeah, we could use my neighbor's house directly across the street as the second location. And by the way, she's got a pottery wheel on the patio. <laughs> What are the chances? That's it, it's just it's really creepy sometimes how that stuff lines up. Yeah, that's that's the real movie making magic. Yeah, the universe mm -hmm. just giving it up. Like, well, if you guys are, and that's why you, that's why you do all that work and get going, right? Like, because you things like that are gonna happen. I believe it. I like, I truly believe. Like, as as you put all that effort in, the world, the universe starts kind of giving back to you and saying, "Well, here, okay, you've unlocked this thing. Here you go." Mm -hmm. Well, I like it that you treat it as a as a maybe a prize, a treasure treasure trove in a video game. To me, I feel more like the universe is going. Okay, he suffered X amount of hassles <laughs> and failure, and tape running out, and camera breaking down, car breaking down, gear getting stolen, person having a complete nuclear explosion on set. Now you can have a good thing. <laughs> you can have here's your pottery wheel. Now here's get ready pottery. to solve forty more problems before I give you another break. You suffered all that. Here's your pottery wheel. <laughs> it was a good universe bonus, though, because it, I, uh, yeah, I just couldn't get over that. I, I don't know how we would have moved that thing. We would have had to probably take three or four guys up to uh, far north of Tucson to move that. Hmm. Anyway, I, it was a beautiful I, moment. It was. I remember, um, you know, Bradford got lessons from Marnie, who owned oh, the pottery wheel right. in the house, on how to do pottery. And I remember when it came timed it for him to do it actually in, on camera she's just off to the side just giggling uncontrollably because he's doing it so wrong <laughs> that she just can't even contain herself 
And we had that. I remember one of the one of the requests from you, gents, to me as as art department prop department was: we need some really horrible sculptures that Billy's made that we can have on the shelves in the background. And yeah. I actually, in a rare example of me, in fact, being able to delegate something to somebody else instead of doing it myself, I asked Marnie if she could, if she would mind doing that and i actually they're actually quite nice the ones that she made i know we all wanted them to look like some sort of radiation mutants because <laughs> billy would have done such an appalling job but anyway it, it does get the point across and yeah there there comes a point when you're when you're art directing and and working as a supporting actor in the film and doing location photography and multiple other things that you actually just can't do everything that you might like to yeah that's uh well yeah that's hence the beauty of production assistance could you right. run to the post office and ship this for us please <laughs> pas are so useful i i can't i i we you know we didn't have them before zoe and before and 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 love song and or uh yeah and it was just yeah. wow this is so i can't believe so i just sent somebody back to go grab that and like i remember one of the guys one of the PAs went to get lunch and missed a sandwich. And I was just like, you got to go back and get that sandwich, dude. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this is great. Because I'd have been the one to have now. to go get the sandwich, mm -hmm. you know, or Marty. I would have been, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's been gone for two hours getting ice. <laughs> and so you don't have to worry about that anymore with the PA. That reminds me of something that happened on Meteorite Men. We were filming, I think it was the first Texas episode we, we did. We were filming in the Texas, West Texas in June or July, and it was it was well into the hundreds. And we had a very new, very young PA. It was his very first day filming, and he forgot to bring, forgot to load the water into the trucks Ooh. for the crew. And it, I think it was 105 or 106. <laughs> so, so Sonia Bourne, our field producer, said, Look, okay, you need to get in the truck immediately and drive to the nearest convenience store and, and stock up on water for the crew. We're going to need it. It's a long, long shoot day. Go now. Go quickly. So he does leave right away. It takes a long time. And finally, he comes back. And he, he had one case of water. Oh, and it was geez. those teeny little bottles. Oh, you know, the no. little sip-sized yes. bottles. They're about the size of a golf ball. And <laughs> he only brought that for, for the entire crew in 105-degree oh. weather for what oh. we were expecting to be a 12- or 14-hour shoot day. And there was a bit of a meltdown. And he was, yeah, sent back to get the missing sandwich. Get 10 cases of water, real-sized <laughs> bottles, not those stupid little things. Well, and that's when you learn, that's when you realize when you're, when you're on the set and you're doing things like, like we do, you know, you're the head of a department or something that you, yet sometimes you have to just spell it out. Yeah. Not just go to the convenience store, but go to the convenience store, get eight cases of 12 ounce bottles of water, come back here, put them in coolers with ice. Oh, well, while you're at the convenience store, get ice. You know, yeah. Like it's, you know, you have to, it's, and, you know, cause some will, some get it and fit right in and go oh yeah okay that's obvious and then others are just like you have to explain it yeah, and that's so that true it goes across the board in every aspect mm -hmm. of filmmaking too where you you just assume oh they understand what i'm talking about oh yep. shit i no, guess they no, didn't they, they, they really didn't don't explain myself correctly so mm -hmm. everybody out there explain yourself be completely transparent and always have a lot of water. You might <laughs> yes, want soda or all this other stuff. People need water, especially the actors, because it's hard to do your lines if you're drinking nothing but Coca-Cola. 
I mean, <laughs> I don't mind having the I don't mind having the soda on set because I like my oh, of course to be awake awake for the caffeine. But yeah, you but, gotta have the water. You gotta have the water too. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes get accused of over explaining things, which may well be true. I'm quite detail oriented, but my goal is I want to give somebody direction. And they can go and carry out the entire task and return mm-hmm. without having to call me and go, Jeff, did you want plastic bottles or glass bottles? Or are cans okay? Do you want gallons? Do you want they don't have this would be the thing. They don't have cases. Is it okay to get gallon jugs instead? Yes, obviously. Just get whatever is available. It's Texas in the summer. We need as much water as you can transport in the car yesterday. That's hilarious. But I didn't say it like that because he was a nice young guy and he was learning. And it was all good in the end. And nobody Marty. passed away in that episode. It Marty was like us. Me. It was like us running around looking for water during glass oh, production. Jesus, yeah. Well, I yeah, found two places we, over here. Well, I found yeah, we were texting each other. Time. Hey, the, the place up here on the north side has two has cases of water for you know during the COVID thing. It was remember that, early. Jeff? You were like, well, I found a case of Dasani over here, and it's like, oh, that's right. Yeah. I completely forgot about that, and that was also when the toilet paper and paper paper towel mm-hmm. shortage had yes. started, and and the sanitizer shortage, and sanitizer. That's and right. Vegetables for Olivia to cook. <laughs> And actually, going back to to uh, our friends who so generously provided their homes as locations, numerous other people who helped. When we were at the end, we were wrapping up everything. I said, "Listen, I want we we want to get something to thank you for everything. How about fruit basket or gift card or something?" And everyone said, "We just want toilet paper and paper towels if you can get them." <laughs> yeah, we were like, "Here, you can have whatever we have." <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, Marty will tell you on a set, I'm a two-bag of ice guy. Get two bags of ice. Don't get one bag of ice. Get two bags of ice. Mm-hmm. Never enough Good advice. Ice. Never have enough ice. If, to those of you listening, this is solid, sound indie <laughs> filmmaking advice we're giving you here. Seems say. like common sense, but you get going so fast you and you're wearing you 30 hats, and these, these things can slip past you. It's so true. We're going to probably come back to this later, but my friend David Rout, who is a fantastic producer and director and and directed was one of the two directors i worked with on my my tv series stem journals is uh someone i I just really like working with i think he's won seven emmys he's he's a brilliant guy yeah and we had this the show stem journals that we were doing i was the i was the main host and we we did different uh, every episode was was on a different science subject so we did Mm -hmm. astronomy and paleontology and so on and and we quite often had young students, science students, come on as my with my guest co-host for a segment, and they were would typically typically be middle schoolers. And one of them was very very keen to go into the film business. She was really fantastic. She had a natural gift, uh, speaking, learning lines, and, and just being very professional. And so she asked both of us. She said. I really want to go to film school. Do you you think it's a good idea? Should I go to film school? Jeff, what do you think? And I said, well, I I didn't go to film school. I would have loved to have gone to film school for fun. I took film classes at other Mm -hmm. schools. But Dave went to film school. Ask Dave, Dave, what do you think? Should she go to film school? And he said, and this is, okay, bear in mind, this is coming from a a seven-time Emmy (laughs) Award-winning director producer. He said, I didn't learn anything at film school that I couldn't have learned working as a PA for a couple of years. And I thought, wow, there's practical <laughs> advice for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Wow. <laughs> I think, I mean, you, what, there's, there's two schools of thought on it as far as I know, which is, you know, you, you go the education route, the book route, or you go the hands-on route. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, please don't think I'm putting down film school at, at all. I'm, no, I, I'm not, I don't, I, would, I think whatever, whatever gets you there and gets you the good, you mm-hmm. know, gets you to making the film, right? Like, it's so hard to make a movie and finish a movie. However you got there, congratulations. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, re- that's a really good comment. And I also think it's a matter of personality. And, and since I've done a lot of work with kids, a lot of educational work and, and outreach work, many times in, in my life, parents have taken me aside and they've got teenage kids and they go, Oh, we don't, our kids don't know what to do. Should they go to college? Should they not go to college? It's so expensive. And, we're just really stuck. Can you, can you give our kids some advice? And I don't have kids of my own. I don't know that I'm the best person to give advice to, but what I've always said is if you're in doubt when you finished high school, take a year off or two years off or five years off and go out into the workplace and get some practical experience. Work as a PA, work as an intern, Mm -hmm. get a, get a, get a, a difficult job in in the service industry. So you see what it's like. And then you go, do I want to, go back to college and get a degree or do I want to go the hands-on route? And as you say, Cliff, there are, there are many, there are many pros to both. It, right. I think it's largely a question of, of, of temperament. And, and also sadly these days, financial resources, because going to film school ain't cheap. Exactly. And if you want to do half of what you would learn at film school on your own, just start watching as many old movies as you can and study the techniques from where they sprouted from, because that's a lot of what they're going to teach you from in the film schools anyways, is the origins of the techniques and whatnot. So mm-hmm. just just listen to a bunch of DVD commentaries and watch as many classics as you can and be, be a PA and there you go. Yeah, That's a deep way to that's do good it. advice too. And especially if you were to subscribe to one of the really great streaming services like Criterion, which, which yeah. features is, is, is built around the concept of showing films that have undeniable quality. And, and many mm-hmm. of them are not that well known in the mainstream. And, and many of them have commentaries, many of them have extra features. Other filmmakers will talk about why they love this film or they'll analyze a particular shot. Right. And there's mm-hmm. some great YouTube channels about filmmaking as well. We live in an age where you can teach yourself pretty much anything except brain surgery i i would think (laughs) i I think it would just be difficult to get test subjects i don't know maybe not maybe not depends where you live probably it's weird to me that doctors call it a practice like i would prefer that you be proficient in it um anyway so outside of doing film well obviously you've got a lot of other interests but what would be like the secondary is it would it be still the meteor thing or music or gosh it's interesting that you've asked that marty because i've i find myself at a at a crossroads mm-hmm. at this this period in my life so i have I had the good fortune to work in in many artistic fields as a cartoonist illustrator photographer art director publisher and television host television producer and now indie film producer thanks to you guys. So I've, I've had very fulfilling experiences in many different fields. And I, I, I mean, I, I loved comics since I was a kid. I really wanted to be a cartoonist. And I worked in the comics industry for quite a few years. I had the really great good fortune to, to befriend and work with and, and study with some of the greatest cartoonists of, of the last century, including Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman and Art Spiegelman and my, my 
oldest childhood friend is Neil Gaiman. So we, we, we grew up as kids reading comics and drawing comics together. So, so comics were always in my life and I always thought I was going to be a cartoonist. And after going to art school in New York, I actually have a degree in cartooning and working in the comics industry, working at Raw Books and Graphics, Art, Art Spiegelman and Francoise Mouly Spiegelman's company for several years, I felt like, well, I've, I've, I've filled the jar of experience of co in comics for me now. It doesn't mean I don't love comics anymore. I just wanted to do something else. And mm -hmm. I've had that experience in publishing and in the music business. I was a professional musician for 25 or 30 years. And I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> sure. What is there that I haven't done that I'm, that I'm really interested in well, doing? Is there anything is, uh, like a hobby, perhaps? You're, that you're looking for your next professional thing. Maybe it doesn't have to be a professional thing. Is there like a hobby that you that you like to do in your downtime? That's kind of a creative outlet. Or I found that in the in the past two years or two and a half years, really since the beginning of the age of COVID, I suppose I've finally found a way to do to read the amount of literature that I've always wanted to. I've always loved books. I'm I'm a writer, as you know. I, I love reading books. I collect books. I've, I've worked in the publishing industry for many years. And I have a terrible habit of buying loads of books and going, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I'll, I'll read this later. I'll get to the, oh, this one's got such a good cover. Look at this. Oh, here's a, another film history book. And then not reading them. And so I have been, I've become very Stalinist in my, my if you're going to buy a book, you're going to have to, that is going to be the next book that you're going to read. So I, I make time for reading virtually every day. It might only be 15 or 20 minutes, but more often it's it's an hour or more. So I've been steaming through a, a lot of books I've always wanted to read. That's that's something that that I enjoy. And in in the film world, I've again had the good fortune to have experienced a lot of different a lot of different parts of the film and TV world, all of which I've enjoyed. And I think Everyone wants to be a director, right? At some point. And I mean, anyone who's in film and television, everybody <laughs> wants to be a director. So ever since I was a kid, I thought, oh, being a director must be the greatest thing. And I, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of, of the auteur, of the writer-director, but not necessarily the obvious ones that we would go to, like Orson Welles, uh, who's great, of course. But I'm a great fan of John Borman, Terry Gilliam, Cameron Crowe, the, these, these writer-directors from, from our era who are who are uh, real creators that have, have a story like yourselves. You come up with a story, you turn it into a screenplay, you direct it. You are, you're the, the film uh, equivalent of, of Will Eisner or Harvey Kurtzman or Art Spiegelman in the comics world where yeah, they're writer Jumbo. illustrators. They do, they do the, the whole thing. And, and so much of film and so much of, of illustration and design and comics it's production line one one person does this one person does that so i i like that the the concept of the creator who gets to 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 be involved in all aspects of the production so i'd love to do more more directing i don't really have the 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 director's brain i know you need you need a you need to be very clear about decision making and and have a picture of what you want and how you want to get there and and i've watched you guys many many times uh, on on calm days and and on pressure days and how well you work together you have a very unusual working relationship the 
Marty does this. Marty does the storyboards and keeps track of all the shots and the technical stuff. And and Cliff is you're a little bit more hands on with the the action and try this and talking to the actors. But but you you really work seamlessly together. And it's it's a very unusual thing to see two writer directors working in in harmony like that. So I like directing small things. And the the piece that I I think was most successful for me that I enjoyed the most was a a 10-part YouTube series that I did for my Meteorite Men co-host, Steve Arnold, called Fireball Steve. And we we did that a couple of years ago. And he wanted to do a series that really explains how you... If you saw, if you saw a meteor or a fireball in the sky, what do you do? How do you, how do you track that? How do you find it on the ground? How do you identify it? So he, he came out to Tucson and we, we designed and built a, a, a set. We wanted, a, wanted it to look like a... A, a mad scientist set of a bit, a bit like Blitzkrieg's lab at the, in the, in the trailer at the beginning of Revenge of Zone, yeah. actually. So I, I really loved doing that. It was a very interesting experience for me because Steve and I had worked so very closely together for over three seasons of Meteorite Men, which took four years. It was four years of work to make the three seasons. So that I like that. Uh, I like being able to have a picture in your mind of how a thing is going to be and then bring it into existence. And it's not that different from writing a book or executing a painting. For, mm-hmm. for in, in my creative world, I usually have a, uh, it's almost like a vision in my mind of what the thing will be at the end. Mm-hmm. And then how, yeah. how do I get, to there? get it there? Yeah. And I, I directed a, well, actually my, my limited experience as a director also began with Meteorite Men. It was it, the Wisconsin Fireball episode. And mm-hmm. we, there, this enormous fireball had been seen in, in uh, late 2009 over, over Wisconsin. And we, we went there and we filmed and we didn't find anything. And then we went back and we went back. And I think we ended up going about five times over a period of several months. And, and at one point, some some watcher i guess fan would be the wrong word but some watcher posted on our facebook or whatever some chat room oh it's so obvious that you guys didn't film that all in one <laughs> go because in at the beginning the tree leaves are green and then at the end they're brown and i i would always try and answer these things and i go yeah you're absolutely right we went back five <laughs> times over the period of a year looking for these meteorites and trying to complete this episode it was a really tough one and i think the fourth trip the, there was no director. I can't remember if he got sick or forgot, or they just didn't book a director. And Steve and I are out there in the middle of nowhere with a cameraman and a sound man, and that was it. And and so I said, well, I guess we're directing ourselves in this segment. And it wow. it's in, it always interests me when you see actors who become directors. Clint Eastwood being a great example, and I think a really great director, one of my favorite living directors. And Ron Howard also, what a fantastic career starting as a child actor. For some people, I think you spend enough time in the film and television environment and you absorb enough to go, okay, I think I understand how to direct now. Mm-hmm. I really doubt that Ron Howard went to film school after all of his experience in television. He probably absorbed that it. That film school, yeah. <laughs> so I could, I could see more of that. I could see more, uh, more directing, perhaps. And another uh, a, a neglected love of mine is paleontology. I love Ooh. fossils and fossil collecting. Mm-hmm. And the fossils are a heck of a lot easier to find than meteorites. So, um, um, 
I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll come back to that later. I got a I got a funny fossil hunting story. You mentioned our decision making process, and I remember the day that you came onto the set to do your scene. You showed up with a couple of outfit choices. I thought maybe this or this with that, and so on. And you're showing it to me and Marty, and I said, "Let's do with this shirt. Let's do that shirt, but let's do it with this jacket." And I walked away, and you seemed. I don't know. I didn't know you very well at that time, but you didn't seem happy. Or, or, like, did, like I, I don't know. You, you just, you weren't going about the business of putting on the costume. You were just sort of sitting there looking at it. And I said, is everything wrong? And he went, no, it's just that I don't normally work with people who know exactly what they want. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, well, okay. I mean, I don't have time to not know what I want. <laughs> we got to shoot this thing. Oh, that's so great. Gosh, I don't remember that. But I definitely remember the day. And I, that was the t-shirt that said Ashcan Comic. Ashcan Comics, yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Which, is, uh, which is one of the many in-jokes that we put in the film. Because an Ashcan Comic is, uh, is a fake comic book that's put together for promotional purposes. Yep. Or a prop or, or, <laughs> or similar. So good. So we normally have a question for actors about what their dream role is, but I'm going to mix it up a little bit for you. What's your favorite thing to do on a film set? Ooh, good question. Because you've done like, yeah, I mean, she was like, I love everything. (laughs) Costume, costume, set design, art direction, photography, um, uh, production, uh, pre-production. I mean, you've done so much stuff. What an interesting question. Actually, I'd love to answer the acting question as well if we have time, but, let, but let's do this first. I, the thing that came into my mind is, is, a, is a story that, that Cliff and I have laughed about to ourselves many times, but I just think it's one of the most brilliant things that's happened in my filmmaking and television-making experience, and it's to do with costumes. And this goes back to the time when Revenge of Zoe was screening at the Silver City Film Festival. Is that right? Silver That's what it's called? Silver yeah, City, Silver yeah, City, Silver City. Film Festival yeah, it was in Las the Orleans, Orleans Casino. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Cliff calls, or mentioned on one of our regular production calls, that, that he and his lovely wife are going to Vegas to see Revenge of Zoe, because it's in the film festival. And it's playing at the Orleans, and I go, the, the Orleans, man, I would love to see our movie on that big, big screen. So I decided to fly up and meet them. We had a blast. We had we had some extra time. And the day before the screening, we went for this lovely lunch. And that's where we were going through the we were going through the love song script that day. We sat we? down and we sat down and went over it page by page. I had At lunch the, and went over it page by page. Yeah. And who knew that there was a beautiful cafe in the, a beautiful botanical garden in Las yeah. Vegas? It's not it's not what I would have expected. Really, I was shocked. It was gorgeous. yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. So I'd done a bit of research and I found this strange looking little antique mall place and i said to cliff do you, do you like these kind of weird chops and uh, let's, we've got a, we've got a little bit of time before the screening let's go and so we all just, we jumped in a cab and we drive to this pretty rundown section of old vegas and here's this collection of funny little shops in a strip mall and it was one of those one of those antique marketplaces where there are a bunch of different vendors inside one area and it, it was quite small and we were cliff and i were thrilled because we found some some old punk rock stuff and just your typical knickknacks 
Vegas shot glasses and this and that. There wasn't much of interest. And then I wandered into this room in the back and it's this very tiny room and it is just jam-packed full of costumes of every kind of costume you can think of. Dance stuff, historic stuff. And there's this busted up mannequin, this female mannequin that's missing an arm and part of its head in the corner, look, just looking really sad. And there's this very strange outfit on it that looks like maybe something from a Roman gladiator movie, but clearly a, a woman's costume. And I was just I was transfixed by this thing. It was really well made. Had all the had rhinestones on it. Yeah, a leather, very detailed headdress and, and gauntlets. It was just beautiful. <laughs> so I kept going, oh, okay, it's this very strange, uh, slightly kinky looking costume. I, I, I don't know. I'm just very enthralled by it. So I then walk around and then I go back and look at the costume and back and forth. And, and Cliff knows me pretty well. And after a while he comes over and he's just standing there with his arms folded, looking at me. And he goes, <laughs> he goes I see you really, I see you really interested in this costume, Jeff. I'll tell you what, if you buy that costume, I'm going to put it in the movie. And I said, exactly you're on, you're on, you are, you are the perfect enabler. You've given me a really good reason to buy this costume. I don't know why I want this costume, but I do. So I, I bought it and I took it back to my hotel room in Vegas and I laid it out on the bed and I took a photograph of it and I sent it to Jessica Stone, who became our biscuit, who became our associate producer, because she's a costuming expert. Mm-hmm. She makes her own yep. costumes. She collects vintage Co- costumes. She restores, re- yeah, yep. expert cosplayer restores vintage clothing. And I said, "Look at this thing!" And she she flipped over it. So because of that, we ended up. She, I gave her the costume. She repaired it. When I when I purchased it in the store, the the owner of the place was so thrilled and said, oh, this belongs to this collection from someone who bought one, bought the entire inventory of this old costume shop that used to make the wardrobe for all the Vegas floor shows. Yep. So it's actually a legitimate historic actually, Vegas, Vegas costume. costume. Yep. And, yep. and Jessica said, I think she estimated it was from the 70s, but we, we didn't really know. So she repaired it. She wears it in the film. She got cast in the film so that she could wear this costume. You guys wrote this, this part for her to wear this costume. And then I began to realize the full extent of her many artistic talents. And she came on board as an associate producer, as my assistant art director. We ended up shooting a large chunk of the film in her house. And it's because of her that we shot at <laughs> yes. Marnie's house, who had the, yes. the pottery wheel that we so desperately needed. So as a result, I became very interested in costumes. And that was <laughs> I, something I never really never really gave that much attention to before, but I was so enamored by, by this story and what, what a small thing, this sly remark from Cliff, who can see me obsessing over this very strange antique costume. Well, I wanted you to buy it. And I kept yeah. thinking, I was like, he should just buy it. He's obviously into it. He's got the money. It's not going to kill anything. Just buy the damn costume. And then I thought, I'll just give him a reason to buy it. That's what I'll do. I'll and, and you know, Jessica wouldn't give it back to me. After that, she, oh, that's hilarious! Yeah, yeah, she no, she still got it, and she goes, "I have to have the. I'm in, I'm in love with this costume. I have to have it." And she goes, "I couldn't bear the thought of you giving it to somebody else." And I go, oh, "I'm not going to give it to somebody else. I just thought I might put it on a mannequin and keep it as a memento of the film." But anyway, nope. she still has it. I don't think I'm ever going to see it again. Anyway, it's in great hands. Good work, Jessica. Uh, she, yeah, fantastic. She brought again. Uh, you work with people, you meet people, and you work with people that bring so much 
to the table, you and Jessica and, and so on. It's it it adds. That's how you level up a film. That's how you level up your production. You bring in people. You let them do their what they're talented at and what they're good at mm-hmm. and what they're passionate about. You know. Well, you guys do. Not everybody does that. But that's one of the reasons it's so great working with you is you you're able to identify what people are good at and you encourage them to pursue those areas without uh, uh, without nitpicking, without without uh, micromanaging and with with a great deal of enthusiasm and encouragement. And it's very rare in, in film and television to be given the 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 freedom to go do what you what you do best without somebody all the time going, well, you know, it's a little bit too green or you should, it's too loud. It's too quiet. It needs to be bigger or smaller. And anyway, I feel like I didn't, I didn't really answer your question. That, that was, just, that was just a funny story. That, <laughs> so that was something that, that enthralled and delighted me. And I, I love the causality of that, that the enormous, right. the enormous cause and the enormous amount of positive benefit that came from us going to that antique store in Vegas <laughs> that day, which I would not also none of that would have happened if you guys hadn't submitted to the to the Silver City right. Film Festival. So so well done. Well, and then you got to see that was a great trip. You got to see me damn near lose my shit at a yeah. film festival. We got to see you <laughs> buy a costume. It was it was quite a trip. It was, it was a, fantastic. It was a it was a really fun time. And it made me appreciate the enormous value of sitting down with you and going over a script, going over a screenplay when it's mm-hmm. in production. And yes. I'm I'm not sure I'd ever done that well i I, i've done that on my own but i'm not sure i ever sat down with the writer of a script before and gone through it page by page and said what about this and and, i mean you i wasn't being bossy you asked me for my for my feedback and yeah absolutely it was very exciting to and and rewarding to to be able to go through that but i should i should mention that one of the things that i've enjoyed the most and was certainly one of the most time consuming was designing the props for the comic book shop for cbds in in the love song film there was and, a bunch of them. I mean, what a what a what a tale that was. Yeah. So, of course, in Revenge of Zoe, we filmed extensively in Charlie's comic book shop, and I had a great relationship with Charlie, and he was really wonderful to us, very welcoming. And it it, it was it was good and bad to film in a real comic book shop. It was good because it was a real comic book shop, and we didn't have to put much fake stuff in there. We put in some <laughs> Zoe posters and a few of our own things. But then we, of course, had these experiences where actual customers come in while we're filming and yes. charlie said yes yes you can shoot here but i can't curtail business and in one instance that you you guys are well remember one customer stayed for so long that we asked them if they'd be an extra in the film and we <laughs> just just shot this gentleman shot looking at, at comic books yep. and, and then because covid delayed the the completion of of love, love song Charlie decided to retire from the business and he sold his shop and he didn't have a comic book store anymore and we didn't have a location anymore. So after much soul searching, we decided collectively that we would build a comic book set. And I have to, again, thank Peach Properties, the property management company in Tucson that so very generously allowed us to use their gorgeous property, One One Tool Avenue in downtown Tucson, beautiful historic brick building right by the train tracks circa 1900 for for several days and and we built an entire comic book set there and, and we got a twofer in that didn't we because we shot in the basement yep. as well for the for the scenes with adam and john but something that's worth pointing out to to the casual listener is we can't stock our comic book shop set with spider-man and superman comics we don't have 
permission to use those <laughs> very heavily copyrighted images that are owned by big, powerful companies. And so the gigantic assortment of comic books and posters and artwork that you see in CBDs, or you will see in CBDs in the Love Song of William H. Shaw, were either done by friends of ours, friends and colleagues, and we sought permission to to put those pieces in, or they were created by me. Mm-hmm. And I I don't remember how many comic book covers I did, but I, I must have been at 40. least 30, 30 or 40, yeah. I would say. Comic book posters, uh, uh, comic book covers, rather, movie posters, book covers. That gigantic robot cutout was created from scratch. Under, underground so, robots. Yes. Yeah. So we really wanted to make this comic book store feel real. And when you go into a comic book store, what do you see? Loads of fan stuff. Stickers and posters and toy robots and gas masks and all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> and so the I got really carried away with it. And <laughs> it, it wasn't enough for me to just do a couple of comic book covers and repeat them. Well, they, are, they had to be different. And so some of them were some of them were based on my artwork. Some of them were were artwork that I licensed. Some of them were were copyright free things. But yeah, loads and loads and loads of comic book covers. And I had a lot of uh, I generated a lot of amusement for myself doing that. Especially that Metal Robots of the Underground series, where I think there's nine or eleven covers of from this imaginary series. I don't know what the heck metal robots of the underground are, but I had a lot of fun with the covers and there were all kinds of silly little jokes about robots and puns and things in, in the covers. So I love that. And I, I would say my favorite single piece is probably that Frenzy Apocalypse poster. That yeah, is, is that's on, nice on the little... back of the store, which is also... Four, right? yeah. The... Um, not, not not the not the giant frenzy poster that we had in the in the unveil scene. Right. No, no, no. The one the, Carl. The, yeah, the one where she's got the gun and the explosion yes. behind her. Yeah, 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 photograph yeah, of yeah. Rachel with the with yeah, the good. mushroom cloud going off yeah. behind her. That was three films. Three films, and that's the first time we ever had to build a comic book store or fake one. Three yeah. movies about a comic book store. And that's well, the it's first funny time we ever had to do in, that. In the uh if you count the fourth one, <laughs> we were going to build a comic book sure. store in that one. And yep. we were going to do it on the same side of town. So yeah. when we get all the way to the end of the saga, we ended up having to finally <laughs> do it. But we got to, it's a good thing we didn't try to do that, you know, way back when, because it would have been terrible. Now, yeah. I mean, Jeff would just hang out in the place. We'd all leave. Yeah. And he's like, I'm just going to stay here for a couple more hours, just listen to my music, and just just enjoy his creation. You know? yeah. It's true, isn't it? I, I don't would go great. early as well and go. I want to make sure everything's just right and move some of these comic books around. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was. I've always loved the feeling of being in a set, especially mm-hmm. when there's nobody else there before before the film the day's filming starts and we're tweaking the lights and there's this strange atmosphere it's like being in a club at soundcheck mm-hmm. it's the you've got this this Energy. place that's been created for the purpose of a show or filming and it's going to be populated with actors or musicians but they're not there yet and yeah. it's like a secret time where everything's Calm set up yeah story, and the lights yeah. are on and all the yes. things are there all the goodies are there but there's no activity yet and you can there's this there's a there's a tranquility, uh, a, a magical aura to a to a place like yes. that, and I 
I think I first experienced that when I was a kid and I went to Disneyland when I was 10 with my parents and we stayed right till we stayed in, until midnight when it closed. We wanted to see the fireworks and there's virtually nobody left. And we were in, we were in the wild west in the frontier town, I think. And there was nobody around. And I went over and I started looking at the, the, the prop storefronts that they had. There's the, the minor 49er shack and the pickaxes and the the pans for gold and the canteens and all these things and i went up and looked at them and really up close because there are no guards there's no there's no one around and it, it was all fake but it was so well done and i was i was entranced by the by the by the illusion of it mm -hmm. they were they're just facades there's nothing behind the building or maybe there's a foot of wood around each corner to make it look like but i it goes back but then i stuck my head around the back and i go well there's nothing there this is just this is just a fabrication to create the illusion of mm -hmm. a western town and it works really well and so i i've always been fascinated by that experience and also uh, literature and films that 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 poke at that idea of of the nature of reality or facades philip philip k dick does that a lot of course you see that in, in patrick mcgoon's the prisoner this oh. this, I, this idea of something be itself being a set you're in a set you're existing in a set that's not actually quite the real world Very oh you're, you're, you're gonna like course. the new script jeff you're gonna like yeah. the new script. yeah you're gonna like it's it, funny because you, you tap into one of the things that's one of my favorite aspects is just the whole illusion aspect of it of you know, the movies itself, were, it, it's one giant illusion. We're making you think that this is all happening in a row. And I'm just, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that sleight of hand aspect. And, you know, we, we know, we know the tricks, but other people don't know the tricks and they think it is all magic and, and illusions and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I hung out on that set when there was nobody in there as well, the comic book store. And I know what you mean. It had, it had this serene calm vibe to it which is very unusual for a, a film set because there's usually all something going on but i i understand why you'd like to hang out in that place when nobody else was around because it was just it was very calming mm -hmm. i like excellent it. well i'm so glad you had that experience too and it's a difficult thing to explain yeah it's uh it's as if it's a it's a it's a world that you've created it's a private world and mm -hmm. when the crew and the actors and the the action has not they haven't arrived yet. The action has not yet begun. It has such a different mood yeah, than like when the cameras are rolling and, and we're all we're all working and thriving in that in that environment. You mentioned Philip K. Dick. We, we buried some references to him in that in a, oh, that yeah. film too. Oh yes, we did. Yes, yeah, we got to try to enter into that Philip K. Dick film festival. As yes, please. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that cool. was that was one that was a fun that was another example of you guys encouraging my madness. Where I, I cause, uh, Philip Dick's my my favorite writer, science fiction or otherwise, and I, I've I've studied his work in in great detail for for many years. And I was associate producer on the on the Radio Free album, a feature film hmm. that came out a few years ago. So that was that was a, a rather uh, spectacular experience of of working on something that you care deeply about. But we, we, we came up with this idea that we would collectively, that we would put these Philip Dick references in, in the film. And they're, they're just loads of them. And, and one of, one of my favorites is, is that is the poster that's, that's in, in Billy's apartment. Billy's oh, yeah. apartment. That poster is the, so good. The world that Jane made. And that's, uh, 
I don't know how much we should explain that, but. Uh, well, I, I ran across the book that that was inspired by at work and it just put a smile on my face because I immediately see the poster. Oh, marvelous. I'm well, like, I don't know this. Oh, great. Well, so we should probably explain that. So a very early Philip K. Dick novel was called The World That Jones Made. Mm-hmm. And 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 Phil had a twin sister named Jane who, who died oh. at birth. And he always felt a spiritual, some sort of spiritual or otherworldly connection to her throughout his life. And so the world that Jane made is is really Philip Dick. Huh. So it was it's a it's a it's a reference on multiple layers and and the credits on that poster or mm-hmm. the, they're all characters from Philip Dick novels that from a lot of the famous novels like Ubik and and uh, Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge but there are, <laughs> there are a lot of other ones that that's just that's one of the one of the most noticeable remember we had that idea for a like a a, a small art book of all the images and stuff and yes. that way it be, because then people could actually read all those credits on those posters and shit i mean we have so many creative ideas that we'd love to do but i, I always did like that concept of the art, yeah, of art, book, an Zoe art or whatever it was going to be yeah. well i've <laughs> thought about that a lot and yeah. you'll remember that i actually we were we were thinking of of calling it the art of frenzy yeah and collecting way. not just my work but beautiful work that was done by other artists like Carl Ottersberg, mm-hmm. the illustrator who, who did our beautiful theatrical poster for, for Zoe and the artists who did the earlier comic book covers and so on. Oh, the line drawings for the opening of Revenge. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, Molly Kiley's beautiful, Molly Kiley's beautiful, beautiful work. line drawings. Love well, and that's work. another hard to believe amazing story about how things sometimes just fall into place for, for filmmaking when we were we were wondering what to do for the opening credits of of revenge of zoe and we we were in agreement that we wanted some sort of comic based theme but we didn't really know what i was sitting in the in the car park you know i, I, I in a road outside sprouts one night at night just sitting in my truck i don't know why i was doing it there you know I was, like you do. I was i was looking at through my instagram I was looking through Instagram accounts for cartoonists. I just did a, a search for something like fantastic, unusual cartoon line art drawings. And I'm just sitting there in the dark going through these images. And I, I see this one. I go, oh, I love this. This would be perfect. What is this? And I, I click on it and it takes me to the page of an artist named Molly Kiley. And I go, I know this now. And I, oh, I recognize that name. She used to work for Fantagraphics in the nineties. She was a, a quite a well-known cartoonist. I never met her, but what beautiful work. I wonder where she lives. Tucson, Arizona. I thought she was an old friend. I sent her a message and I go, <laughs> we never met, but I, I know your work from the old days. I also used to work for Fantagraphics a bit. And uh, I'm looking for a cartoonist to do some work on a film. Are you interested? And she goes, yeah, yeah, let's meet for lunch. And we met at that funny little airport, that really cute little, the Marana Regional Airport where there's a little cafe, a little restaurant. And I thought, this is what life is all about. I found a, <laughs> I found a famous underground cartoonist on Instagram who happens to live in the same town as me. And we're going to meet at a tiny restaurant at a virtually unknown airfield out in the desert. It almost <laughs> sounds like the alternate universe version right? of Casablanca in reverse. She's <laughs> got the key to the virus that we need to change right? to save the world. <laughs> And she's a, she's such a lovely person, and so not only did she do the beautiful line art that we used in the animated intro titles to Revenge of Zoe, but she also does a cameo uh-huh. in 
love song. She's the she's the customer wearing the cat head in in CBDs, and yeah, there's a lot of her artwork it. on 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 the wall. Her yeah, original she, artwork on the wall in the comic book shop. She's like our Blofeld in a way, because you would only oh, see yeah. the hand, then the end credits just say question mark. We we're not telling you who's playing this person, but the funny thing mm-hmm. is, it's like her name is right above her in the store. So if you're yeah. looking, who's under that cat head? Well, look at the name right behind the cat head. And there's your answer. Molly Keeley. Oh, when I saw the, when I saw the credits in production, I didn't realize that was intentional. I thought I mean, you we, didn't we, know we, who oh, was. It's, it, I mean, we can go either way. That was just my initial joke with Oh, it. nice. The mystery of who is this person under the cat head? We don't know. I've given <laughs> it away now. Good job. Well, Thanks. there's always editing clips. Yes, true. <laughs> I have a question. Um, so this is one of the questions I like to ask everyone. Um, do you have a you you've obviously been in front of the camera before? It's not not you're not foreign to that. So do you have some favorite feedback that you've ever gotten from a director, and and how do you like to receive feedback from a director if if you like to receive feedback at all? <laughs> Gosh, it's an unusual. It's a, it's a, that's a very thoughtful question, Cliff. <sighs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to to David Rout, who I mentioned earlier. So he was he was one of my STEM journal directors and a, a very talented guy, also editor and and producer. And when we started working on the show, he sent me a questionnaire, which I found quite odd. He's got a very good sense of humor. He's a very he's a very funny guy, very intelligent guy, really good company. We've stayed very good friends. And he sent me this odd questionnaire and it was all things like, where did you grow up? What's your favorite food? What kind of car do you drive? And I thought, I feel like I'm at school. I never had a thing like this before for a, for a TV <laughs> show or a film. So I called him and I go, Dave, what's the purpose of this questionnaire? I don't mind doing it, but what, what, what's this about? And, and he said, well, I just want to learn. I just want to learn more about you. And I, I think this will help. So I go, oh, well, okay. So why not? So I, I filled out all the questions and one of them was, do you have any phobias? And I'm being very naive and just trusting that this is sort of a kind of nondescript thing that we're just doing. So like an idiot, I fill out my, my phobia is bees. I, I'm terrified of bees. I love bees. I, I, I find them the most fascinating creatures, but but I I've I just have several times seen swarms of those killer bees in southern arizona on the move and man it's terrifying so so very foolishly i put bees there for phobia and then and didn't really think about it again and then a few weeks later i get a script from dave from this new episode that we're doing of stem journals called social insects and he called me with great amounts of glee and he goes i wrote this specially for you and so we did termites out in the desert, and then we did a thing on ants, and then we went to the ASU Bee Lab in eastern, eastern, east of Phoenix. And I, there were 32 active hives there. And it wasn't enough to just look at them in the lab. I had to go out and inspect the hives. And so I put on a bee suit and the helmet and all that. And so, okay, you might think, oh, well, big deal. You've got a phobia about bees. You've got to go out and walk around through some hives, but you're wearing a, you're wearing a bee suit. So, so how scary? 
can that be? And and so my answer to that is, why don't you put on a fireman's suit and jump into an active volcano and see how you feel? So it, it was an absolutely terrifying experience to have these bees, hundreds of bees swarming around me. Even though I'm in this suit, the whole time I'm thinking, I'm sure there's a way that they could get in. Or maybe there's some kind of special bee and their stinger will go right through it, right through this. So so afterwards I go, Dave, what was what was the point of all what was the point of all of that? And he said, he said, your fear and your courage were so real that you couldn't have faked that. You can't. That's not something that you could manufacture. And so my takeaway from that, what I've learned and what I tell people who tell me that they want to be in television and what should they know, I say the one most important takeaway is the more you suffer and the more hardship you go through and the more terrified you are while making the show, the better television you get on screen. (laughs) So while it wasn't... It wasn't exactly it wasn't exactly direction, but that that was a very useful takeaway. And uh, another thing that comes to mind is Debbie Myers, who who was the general manager of Science Channel and a, a great supporter of of Meteorite Men and and our boss when when we were making the show. We absolutely loved working with her. She was really committed to education and, and quality television. And Steve and I had a call with her. Uh, well, we had many calls with her, but one day we we were we were talking. We'd done season one. We were getting ready to go into season two, and she said, "the the thing about the show that meant the most to her was the authenticity and the enthusiasm." And she said, "It doesn't matter how good an actor you are, you can't fake that. You can't fake the enthusiasm. And with you guys, mm-hmm. it's real. Your enthusiasm mm-hmm. is real for what you do, and that's what that's what we aspire to." And I, I wrote it down and I printed it out on beautiful paper twice and I had it framed and I sent one to Steve and I kept one in my office and I, I still have it. I still carry it around with me. So that, that stay in touch if you can with the genuine joy and enthusiasm wh- wh- whenever you can, because mm-hmm. r- real enthusiasm, real excitement will always will always overshadow manufactured enthusiasm. I think that's what people kind of i think that's that thing that people catch on to when they're on our sets that they that keep them you know that they're like oh, i really want to be involved in this it's like marty and i are very genuine and enthusiastic about what we're doing and we're doing it you know because we love doing it and we're trying to make something great right you know, for so, sure that's very true um, and it's a very it's a it's an efficient set but it's a very friendly set and yeah and uh, i i uh marty's very calm cliff's very we have to get this done okay hurry up move this move this along but not in a mean way just in, in an authoritative way but funny also and and i mean you you guys will crack up laughing when something funny happens and and it is it's it's always well received when someone does a little prank or mixes up their lines and everybody cracks up no oh, you guys never get annoyed at that you you, dude, you enjoy paul, that paul pulled the greatest one on on um Bradford during Revenge of Zoe. So poor, poor, so Bradford. There's a, there's a scene in Revenge of Zoe where he he's in the hotel room. He's in his hotel room. He's drinking. He's really enjoying it, and he's in a bath towel around his. Just that's it. Just a bath towel, and he's drinking. And somebody starts knocking at his hotel room door, and he thinks it's the maid. So he keeps saying, "Yeah, leave me alone. Go away. I don't need more towels. Whatever." And threatens the whoever's knocking that he's gonna. Uh, <laughs> You know, open. I'm gonna answer that door. I swear to God. And so he walks over. He drops the towel, walks over, and it's just a shot of his back, his butt, basically. And he rips the door open, and our actor Paul is standing there, 
And so we tried the like, you know, the whole sock or whatever thing. And he's just like, screw it. Let's just go. And so he's he's bare, bare ass naked. And, and he opens the door and Paul's got his phone out and makes a fake phone <gasps> noise. And Bradford's like, just dove to the floor. And I mean, I thought I was going to pass out laughing. And Paul's like, look, no photo. He's showing him like, I didn't take, I wouldn't do that to you. But oh, it was, so it's, and it's, it's on camera that it's actually on camera of him doing it. And it's, it's really hilarious. <laughs> That's a really great scene too. And, and, and Bradford plays that really well. His annoyance is palpable. Okay, I warned you, and you see what's coming. You know he's going to drop the towel to the maid. It's such a good... And then, of course, it's not the maid. It's his agent. It's such a good scene. I love that. So Um, do you have... Oh, go ahead, sir. Sorry, no, please. I was going to say, so your dream role is beekeeper, right? That's what... Oh, very good. (laughs) So maybe I could play... um, Maybe I could play John Belushi in a a biopic with the the buzzing bees from... There you go from from something <laughs> so what, what was your dream role to go back to that quickly before we jump into uh, the next thing from cliff there it's it's that's something that that really interests me and, and i've i've thought about i've thought about this a lot so most the majority of my career has been in non-fiction television and and in documentaries and so mm-hmm. i've done loads and loads of of science and <clears throat> excuse me, science and adventure television and some acting, which I, I have enjoyed immensely. And, and thank you very much for the opportunity for, for real acting roles. The, the type of role that would appeal to me, a dream role would be to, would be to play a character from history that, that I really admire, a hero of mine, but perhaps not, um, not an obvious, so not, so not an obvious character. And something that comes to mind is is what's called the Bone Wars that went on in, in the late 1800s between two great American paleontologists, O.C. Marsh oh, I know. and Edward yes. Drinker Coat. Do this. you? Do you know about yeah, this? Yeah, well, isn't that the one where he walked in and like was like, you got the head on the wrong end of the, of yes. the skeleton? Yes. Yes. yes, yes, So these two, well done. So Thank these you. two started <laughs> off as colleagues and became fierce rivals between in, in the last about the last 30 years of the 19th century and they were both eminent scientists and paleontologists but they were they were quite different characters and there is a fantastic non-fiction book about about them and their lives and their work called the gilded dinosaur which which I absolutely love and so i i've always i've always really been drawn to the story because of course it 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 includes my interest in paleontology and, mm-hmm. and the Wild West and this uh, and early science and adventure, big adventure like Indiana Jones level adventure, dinosaur hunting, this yeah. this fierce competition between these two guys, this or this really a war between them. Who can find the biggest and best and newest and most important dinosaur? And I I like both characters, but I'm but I'm I'm always a little bit drawn towards. O.C. Marsh, I, I, I just, I find him a, a spectacular <laughs> character. But if I were to play him in, in a movie, which uh, maybe we'll do this when we when we get the multi-million dollar infusion of cash that we're expecting uh, any millennium now. Coming, coming soon. Good. I would have to grow a really preposterous beard and mustache, but I would do that for for the opportunity to, to, to do that. So the, the opportunity, the chance to inhabit a character from history that I really admired, who was somewhat in my field as well i would Uh, i would cast you just to see the mustache and the beard yeah you would wouldn't you you rascal yes yes absolutely (laughs) 
you kidding me? Don't tell, don't tell me you're afraid of bees. You know who I am. <laughs> I thought, no, we're going to see bees in the next film. Just kidding. No, and, I'm allergic, so no bees. Oh, okay. No, no I, I am too, actually, which just adds to the, just adds, adds to Right. It. Yeah. And, and another uh, another way of answering that would ju- would be the opportunity to to be in a film adaptation of of a work by an author that I that I particularly liked like like Philip Dick for example to and and as mentioned I, 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 I was lucky enough to work on Radio Free Album so so I worked on a Philip K Dick novel in a production capacity but but to to act a role that had been written by an author you adored I think mm-hmm. would be a great that would be a, I would, a, a very fulfilling accomplishment in life. I would give a couple fingers and toes to to be able to get a budget for like a uh, William Gold uh, William Gibson script. I would. Oh. Same here. You need a yeah, sure. You know, I mean, it, it's it's worth the trade off. If I can if I can make Neuromancer the way I, way I want to make Neuromancer or count God forbid count zero. Yeah, I'll take that all day long. Yeah, Neuromancer is one of my all time favorite science fiction books. It's, Actually, it's fantastic it, it really it's is fantastic so and it was it's a it's a it's a genre defining moment yes, everything was different after yes, neuromancer yes and he coined so many phrases in that book i mean he created cyberpunk with that book yep just created it's just like here i'm just going to create this entire genre everybody's gonna they're gonna base games on it and all kinds of stuff and you know i i I put him at the same level as H.G. Wells and Mary Shelley. He's yeah. he's a major, major figure in science fiction and, and literature. You have you have a Gibson story, I believe. Yes, he's a very nice gentleman too. I <laughs> I, uh, I once was lucky enough to hang out with him in New York. I'd gone to a to a reading by Jack Womack, the sci-fi writer who who wrote Elvisy, which is a book that I really like, and it was in this funny little underground literally literally underground i'm not i don't mean i don't mean secret well it was secret but i mean a below ground club in new york city and i mm-hmm. somehow heard about it it didn't seem like it was widely advertised it was invited by a friend of a friend and went really enjoyed the reading had a great time and there's william gibson in the audience small audience on a i don't know late it was late friday night in the east village so when the reading was over i went up to him and said oh, i just introduced myself love your work great fan of your work neuromancer probably said same what i just said to you which was was it was a a genre defining moment and i said fancy a drink and he goes yeah sure and so we went over and we just sat at that bar in this this little underground club for a long time and had a really fascinating conversation and he's just a really nice person obviously brilliant but but warm and and, uh, what what a moment and it it was one of those times in my life where i was sitting there on the stool uh drinking cocktails with william gibson going there are so many people that wish they could be sitting at the stool God, right yes. now, right now, enjoying this moment. Yeah. So, so I became an extra fan after that. It's such okay. a, it's such a delight when you meet someone whose work you admire in the real world and they turn out to just be a splendid person. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's how I felt about Trejo. And when we met Trejo, it was just like, this guy is awesome. Yeah. What just a great dude. The years and say, Hey, can we use, can we use one of your songs in our film, which is something I've been doing over and over again for the past few years. So yes, I, I so it's I, great. It's, oh, thanks. It's great. Cause, well, we, cause it's just, it's like, look at all this quality freaking music we're getting our hands on, man. It's fantastic. Well, and thank you guys for, for letting me do it. And I know this is something that we had kind of thrown around as an idea. And I, I remember saying to you guys, this was a little while after baby driver come out. And I said, not counting baby driver, which just came out. What is the last film you saw 
that had such a kick-ass rock and roll soundtrack, it made you want to go out and buy the album. Th- think about it. And I, mm-hmm. I think I think we agreed on Gross Point Blank was probably it. May have been it. Yeah. I think that was one of the ones that was was thrown around. So that was my that was the bar. I I, I want to make a soundtrack of great music. There's very high energy, all original music, not canned music, that is so good that people would want the album or the playlist. And mm-hmm. so you guys said, well, if you I can if on. you can make it happen, go do it. So one of the first things I did was have a custom T-shirt printed that said "Kick-Ass Rock and Roll Soundtrack," and I just <laughs> wore that around the house while I was thinking about how to do it. So, so just an so an example of of so of how important music is to me. So uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of music films that are very that are very meaningful to me. The winner, hands down, is Westway to the World, the story of the Clash, the official Clash documentary. Mm, so, okay. Clash, my favorite band of all time. How convenient for me that my favorite ever music documentary is about my favorite ever band. That oh, that just worked weird. out really well. <laughs> And yeah. directed by Don Letts, who is their sound man and traveled uh-huh. with the band for many years and went up later, was in Big Audio Dynamite with Mick Jones, Clash guitarist. So very interesting filmmaker. It's, to me, it's the definitive rock documentary. It's the definitive punk rock documentary. Don Letts does such a fantastic job of mixing a, 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 an emotional snapshot of that time. It really takes me back to what London was like in the late seventies, the, how grim it was under the conservative government and all these houses and buildings boarded up and the birth of punk rock, the, the political strife, the, the racial tension, the police strikes too, right? Oh yeah. Garbage strikes, coal miner strikes, power cuts. It was, it was, it was pretty grim in England Mm. then. So, but, so, but it's not a bleak film. It just, it recaptures Mm. that, that atmosphere that led to the, to the birth of punk rock. And then he does these brilliant sit down interviews with all the members of the clash, the definitive interviews. This is the official story of this tremendously important band. And Joe Strummer is a hero of mine. One of my my favorite musicians and lyricists, and also one of my most admired public speakers. And when I started doing a lot of public speaking, I studied Joe. I watched Joe's interviews because he's such a passionate speaker and so articulate. And the film was made fairly, fairly shortly before he passed away. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a great testament to the band. So, and I was at two of the concerts uh, of which they have footage in the film. So, wow. so, that, wow. so that's, that's a deeply meaningful film to me. That's one of those films that whenever I see a copy, I just buy it because I know somebody's going to want it. And I just, I just, I've distributed to the world many copies of that DVD. Oh, yeah. And well, that's, that's that a big a, statement. The definitive punk rock documentary. That's a big statement because I mean, I haven't seen Westway, Westway to the world. I, I think I may have seen it years ago, but I haven't seen it in a while. But to me, that's, that's, um, um, oh, my, why am I suddenly blocking on it? Um, the, the, um, it's the West Coast uh, punk rock documentary. Oh, Dec- Decline of Western Civilization. Decline of Western Civilization. Yeah. yeah. Why? How did I just blank on that? But yeah, Decline to me is the definitive punk rock. But it, if it's that, if it's that level, I gotta go see this thing again. It's a, it's a wonderful it. film, and it I like it because it's not just live footage. There's plenty of live footage, but the 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 footage 
of them on stage and the footage of, of what England was like and, and the youth movement was like at that time, combined with these very professionally done, very candid interviews, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's miraculous to me. It, it really presents the, the picture of the band. And I also have to give a very favorable mention to the Runaways biopic oh, from 2010. Which yeah, so I I saw the Runaways when I was a teenager, and I saw Joan Jett many times, and I did. I'm a massive fan. I think Joan Jett's a brilliant musician. I, I loved the Runaways, and so that film is so accurate. It's so authentic. The the costumes and the guitars, the album covers, the t- everything that they recreated. And Joan Jett, of course, executive producer on that film, which is no doubt one of the reasons it's so it's so authentic. But I I I love that. But for actual musical, well, I'm not sure if you'd even quite quite call this a musical. But but Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which which just came out this year, I haven't I just, seen it, but I keep hearing great reviews. Man, I, I had this experience about twelve minutes into the film, where I actually thought to myself, "It's almost not worth making films anymore because this is so transcendent." This scene. It starts sure. about ten minutes into the film, and and All Elvis right. as a as a young boy. I'm not giving any, anything away. You'll when you when you see the film, no, you'll good. go, "Oh, this is the scene Jeff was talking about." Elvis is a little boy, and he hears this music coming out coming out of a shack, and he runs over with with a couple of his friends. He's probably I don't know six or seven or eight, and and Big Boy Crudup, the the blues player, is is playing, and and there's a woman dancing, and and then they hear this more intense music and there and you see a tent across this sunburned grassy plain and he runs over there and there's a there's a gospel performance going on this 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 spiritual almost magical gospel performance and 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 uh and crudup's uh playing that's all right mama but a very slow bluesy version of it and then it blends with the with the gospel music. And then the film starts cutting to him going to Sun Studios and recording the Sun Sessions there. And then it starts cutting to his first, he's getting psyched, he's back, he's outside, he's getting psyched for his first performance at the at the Hayride. And Hayride, it yeah. keeps cutting back to Elvis as this little boy and his, his hands are going up and he, he's being taken over. He's going into this trance in the, in the, in, in this, in the, in the, in the, in the gospel music uh-huh. service. And it's wow. as if the, this 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 powerful spirit this energy of black music is 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 going into elvis and up into into the sky or into heaven it's an astonishing moment in film where where if it it, i imagine that baz luhrmann said to himself i want to something like i want to show what would happen if you were possessed by music if 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 this 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 uh, this benevolent spirit of 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 music went into you and cr- caused the birth of rock and roll, what would that look like? And it's such a masterful mixture of 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 filming and 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 visual editing and audio editing. It's just to me, it was a transcendent moment in film. It's just it's just it's it's wow. So do go do go and see that. When you That's uh, on HBO right when now, you, when you have the like chance, yeah, it's a heck of a movie. <laughs> and I'm sure you've experienced that at concerts in real life, where you've been to special shows where the mm. performers are just like, "Wow, you're just channeling, yeah. you know, 
right there, right in front of your face. It's, just, it's nothing quite yeah, like I, a, a really amazing I concert. I left a piece of my soul at the at the Dirt Alice in Chains concert at the Tucson right. Civic Center. There's, there's still a part of me in the basement of that thing just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just throwing up the horns and screaming rooster to this day. You know, it's funny, as an aside, and you, yeah, I don't know if you want to snip this or not, uh, <laughs> you were mentioning that in that Clash documentary, you were at two of the shows. Yes. Well, they made a Kurt Cobain documentary, Montage of Heck. I'm not really that fond of it. I think it's a little tabloidish. But strangely enough, the Phoenix show that Cliff and I attended is featured in the footage. And oh, I'm just nice. Like, oh, geez, how weird that of all the things, the show that we were at is in that footage. It's just, just odd. when when Right when you're watching the documentary and you're like, wait a minute, I was not a part of this history, but I was... I witnessed a piece of it as it was happening. It's just, just crazy. Oh, that's great. And you, and you become part of the history. And, yeah. and one of those two, one of those two clash concerts is, is the famous outdoor concert they did at, at Victoria park in, yeah. in the late 1970s. And it, it was, it was the first big rally of the anti-Nazi league. It was, it was the rock against racism movement. And I, ah. I think there were an estimated 80,000 people there. Wow. And we didn't know, there was no info, of course, many years before the internet, and it was just a poster that said Clash, Steel Pulse, Sham 69. We didn't know anything or when everybody, anybody was playing. And it took hours to walk through this giant park, and there were tens of thousands of people and skinheads and punk rockers and everyone, and it was just complete mayhem. And we didn't know, we didn't, there was no kind of schedule. We just got to the to the edge of the stage. And by the way, the person I was with was Graham Smith, the bass player in, in Phasers on Stun, who co-wrote... Oh beating of the rain which is, oh, the, right. which is the song right. that's the the introduction the the intro theme Fantastic. to our new really film like that one. we just got to the side of the stage and and a guy comes guy walks up on stage and he goes london city rockers please welcome the clash and the whole place went bonkers and footage from that concert is in so many films it's in Westway to the world it's in rude boy it's mm-hmm. in london town uh, a couple of others. I think it's in the in the futures unwritten, the Joe Strummer documentary. But I just keep seeing that film. That footage comes up over and over again. And every time I go, oh, I was at that concert. I was right down at the front in front of Paul Simon, and I always look for myself in the crowd. That's weird, wow. Jeff, because that Nirvana Phoenix footage pops up in other documentaries too, and I keep having the same experience. Like there it is in the Foo Fighters movie. There it is. In, I'm like, it's I'm like, it's just almost kind of creepy in a way. It's like, really, guys? It's like I I like it, but it's so strange that it's just like you keep using it. That it is especially when you're not expecting it. And I, yeah. I watched this this feature film, London Town, quite recently, in which a, a fictionalized Clash and particularly Joe Strummer characters in in the film, and so. It's it's all it's it, it's a it's a fiction it's a fictitious feature in which real characters make an appearance, but then boom, suddenly there's that Victoria Park footage again, right right in the <laughs> middle of, right. of a feature film rather than a docu- documentary. Wow, yeah, it's it's weird and also pleasant. <laughs> it takes takes you right back there. Well, we're definitely going to have to have you on again because there's so many stories to tell, and we didn't even get to the fossil story you were talking about. But we do yeah, have right. we do have one question left. Okay, well, I'll gladly come back, and we'll do the other ones. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah there's definitely going to be a Jeff Knockin part two. Okay, there has to be. By the and, way, guys, if you haven't figured it out by now, this is one of the most interesting people you're going to hear on this podcast. <laughs> or talk to in the world. The guy's been everywhere and done so much. It's he's a fascinating guy. So and a good nice. friend of ours. What what's your favorite or one of your favorite moments on set with us? Yeah, there yeah. are so many good ones, ones to choose from. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so 
Well, then pick pick a handful. Uh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So I'm gonna do I'm gonna do two I'm gonna do two short ones and a and a, and a slightly longer one. Nice. So the dream sequence. We're filming the dream sequence for Revenge of Zoe. Oh yeah. And I found that location using satellite Im- images <laughs> and sitting in my office in Tucson and I'm going, we've got to find a location. It's got to look really bizarre out in the desert where there, there's going to be this really spooky dream sequence. And there's that beautiful uh, song by Christopher Norman that, that plays over it, uh, which uh, is a very ethereal uh, piece and, and really stands out in the soundtrack. And I, I think goes so well with that. So I, I'd seen this, this satellite image of this, this strange, uh, mountain range outside of Tucson that looked looked like the backbone of a dinosaur. And I, I, I that I got to go see what that is. So I just drove up there in my truck and wandered around and found this this very spooky and steep looking mountain range. And you'd, you'd never tell this from the way the way you guys filmed it so skillfully. But it's like fifty feet from a paved road. We didn't have any <laughs> permits. We didn't have any kind of permission. We just took the whole crew up there. And we go, okay, just just shoot quick here and studied with cactus trees and everything and it's that moment when 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 billy is drinking water out of the rock and i, I think I, I think you just come up with that i think you come i can't remember if that was in the yeah, it was, i think it you came totally up with it fly. on the spot and said oh totally we should have a bit where, where billy drinks water out of a rock and then and then cliff goes okay find the perfect find a perfect rock we need to be able to hide a bottle behind this rock so we've got the whole crew running around on the side yes, of the slope literally the steep slope me, with cactus everybody. with big spines in the summer and there's probably scorpions and rattlesnakes and everyone's running around looking for rocks and then suddenly cliff yells he goes wait just wait just stop a second everybody's looking for rocks and we've got a goddamn geologist on the crew jeff go find a suitable rock <laughs> which i did and that is the rock that was used so so that was that was a moment of great hilarity and then also in zoe the the scene that well one of my i love telling this i love saying this I was the stunt driver in Revenge of Zoe in a very tiny scene. We, we realized, so the, the red car, the old red Toyota, the, the venerable 1988 Toyota Corolla that is in, in Revenge of Zoe, that's Billy's car, was my car. And it that served, a, that since, served since, a transportation car, a set car. Yeah. It, was, it was great. So we realized we didn't have the shot where Billy leaves california to drive to tucson after he's eaten the bag of mushrooms and is drinking <laughs> vodka and billy had uh, the actor bradford trojan our great friend bradford trojan had shaved off his beard and also wasn't available so i went to a halloween store and i bought this really stupid looking kind of fake hasidic beard for a dollar 99 it's so tacky it's so badly made with just a string at the back and then we went up to the to the walmart parking lot the film crew, the the camera, I think just camera. Um, yeah, it was just the three of us, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, uh, kind of at sunset, and I put that stupid beard on, and <laughs> just just pretended to be, to be the great Billy Shaw, mm-hmm. and 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 I wanted him to look like he was highly intoxicated and he's, he's setting out on this so i just drove the car up onto the curb and smashed it around and did all this crazy stuff in the walmart parking lot and the, I, I knocked off part of the exhaust pipe and the muffler yeah i was gonna say i'm pretty sure you can hear that yeah oh does that come through in the soundtrack yeah i heard yes. it 
yeah. <laughs> so when I, but of course you can't tell because it was getting dark and you just vaguely see a guy in there with a beard. But whenever I see that scene, I go, that's me sitting in there with this most preposterous beard. <laughs> Actually, even more preposterous than the beard that I would have to grow if I was going to play O.C. Marsh in the Dinosaur Wars movie. <laughs> so what am I even worried about? So, so, so those are the two funny ones. But, but the, the, the winner, the overall winner has to be the Skylab story. So I've heard many times in interviews, somebody will go, oh, I get inspiration from my dreams. You know, my work comes from my dreams. And I go, God, that just sounds so lame. That's not even really work if it just comes to you in your dream. Well, I had a dream and, and I, then I went and painted it and I go, it's just really lame. Until it happened to me. And then I didn't think it was lame at all. So I wake up one morning and I've had this very vivid dream where I'm in the set of of William Shaw and I, I'm playing my character Adam and Ed Gibson the famous astronaut who was a member of the Skylab crew who spent 84 days in space comes into the store with a copy of this comic book Skylab number one which there is no Skylab comic book but no that uh, in the in my dream I saw the cover very vividly and it was a very Jack Kirby like cover with those spectacular metal and the reflecting on it and the the bubbling radioactivity that Kirby would always put in his spacescapes. So I woke up and I go, oh, wow, that would be absolutely brilliant because the real Ed Gibson is a friend of mine and I, I know him from my work in spaceflight and he lives in Phoenix. So I don't think I even waited for the next production call. I think I emailed you guys and go, I had this crazy idea. I got to talk to you about it. So we had a call and I go, listen, I had this dream where we, where Ed Gibson comes into the comic book store with this copy of the Skylab comic book, and and we buy it from him. And can we do that? And you guys just look at me like, God, you know, every time this guy calls us with an idea, it's more bizarre than the, than the previous one. And, and you guys said, if you can make it happen, we'll yeah. write some dialogue for it. So so I called Ed and said, Ed, I've had this crazy idea. I want you to, I want you to. I want you to do a bit part in our movie as yourself. And you come into the comic book store with a copy of a fictitious comic book about your own mission. And then, of course, I called and he said yes. And I called the mighty Carl Ottersberg, our, our theatrical poster artist, and told him this idea. And I did a sketch of how I'd seen the comic book in my head. And, of course, he did a blazing rendition. Fantastic beautiful yeah. gorgeous very cool. skylab cover and and so it, it came to be in real life and the real ed gibson who held the the world space flight duration record for something like over 20 years i think walks into our set that we built with a book yeah. with a box full of fake comic books that we made and, <laughs> and, and, and does a scene and a fake comic book so that that's going that goes back to what we were talking about much earlier on about having this 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 vision this image in your head of a thing that could be i mean i saw the whole thing in my head actually in a dream and then we made it happen so that was that was my marvelous experience for me and and again i i want to thank you too for uh being so supportive of of these are not everyday ideas the weird thing is he's not the only astronaut in the film i know well and this is one of another one of the brilliant (laughs) things about william shaw so of course as you know in the in that in that montage in the isle of games scene we invited a lot of our friends who are extras 
to I mean, sorry our friends uh, inter- interesting friends people that we like characters to be extras in that scene and and it it so happens that a lot of the people in that scene are astronomy and spaceflight people so i asked my friend dr cyan proctor to be one of the extras so she is a, a science teacher phd television host brilliant brilliant character and a, a great spaceflight advocate so she came for filming in a full-on space. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, in a, in a, what, in a full-on what kind of space? Suit. So it looks you, like a like a series seven, like one of the early flight suits. Yeah, like no, it's it's, it's real. Yeah, it's real. So <laughs> you, she's she's very noticeable in the film. So when you watch the film when it's released, and there there's the scene, and you'll see this lady with the space helmet and the the bright space suit. The amazing thing is, shortly after we shot that, she <laughs> got picked to go on the Inspiration4 mission to space. She'd not been to mm-hmm. space. She was a space advocate. But mm-hmm. she became an astronaut afterwards. And we already thought we were so clever because we'd managed to get Ed Gibson to do mm-hmm. a cameo. And <laughs> then for a time. Cyan <laughs> Proctor became an astronaut retrospectively in our film. So as far wow. as I know, it's the only feature film with two astronauts in it. All right. So see kids, dreams do come true. Yeah. Well said, <laughs> yeah. Right Keep out of the head, guys. right into the screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, that is crazy. It, it's funny, uh, as one last little thing before we wrap up. Uh, I had a an idea that came out of a dream for the movie as well, which is unusual for me. And it was one of those more like right before you wake up, so you're kind of like half conscious and then I immediately woke up and did a prototype of it where I was like, we can make our own fake covers with pre-existing pictures of like Rachel. And, and, and so what I did, I did this mock-up of her with the rose and like a fake frenzy title over it. Mm. And mm. then that spread to, oh, we can make these covers. And then that one kind of morphed into the comic book diaries book cover. Oh, marvelous! I didn't know movie. that. Yeah, I so didn't I was know that, like, that was a dream moment then, for you. Yeah, it's like well. weird dream moments have found their way into the the film. Did Very the, bizarre. Did that new that that uh, frenzy fever dream cover. Did that come from that also? Yeah, that's all kind of that that yeah. same yeah, like yeah. That idea. But I woke, I got up, and usually you sometimes you wake up and you think, well, I'll write this idea down later, and that's always dumb because you forget it. But in this instance, I got up and I immediately went to the computer and mocked it up and sent it to you guys. <laughs> and then it kind of, the ball rolled and then it, it found its way into the finished product, which is just, it's so crazy when that happens, when it's just this weird little spark and then you get to see it come to its conclusion in that same fake comic book store that Ed Gibson walks into. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, just <laughs> wild. It's some... <laughs> strange metaphysical commentary on creativity that we were not going to fully understand but but these things have happened multiple times to us and and actually the the idea of of using the song beating of the rain which is the the intro title song that i that also came to me in a dream and i i I remember sitting up in bed and i just had this dream that we were all in the movies we were all in a cinema and we were watching the opening of love song of William Shaw. And it was this song by my old band beating of the rain. That was originally written by, by my, my punk band phasers on stun in London in in the 1970s. But then my later band, the big picture did a, did a version of it 
we actually recorded that at Lenny Kravitz's studio. Oh, really? In uh, in the late eighties. And here's oh, no. this is an interesting story. I'll, I'll come back. We were going in to record one night, and Lenny was walking out, and he was carrying a little girl in his arms, and it was Zoe Kravitz, who's now mm-hmm. the the famous actress, actor, mm-hmm. female actor, yep. uh, star of the remake of High Fidelity, which I thought brilliant. So I, I met her when she was very tiny. <laughs> but I, I, that was such a, it was such a vivid dream that, and I remember the sound was really good in this, in the cinema. I was going, gosh, this, uh, this song really does sound great as the opening title. What a good decision that was. And then I woke up and I sat up in bed and I go, Beating of the Rain is the opening title yeah. for the, for the mm-hmm. film. I never would have thought of that. And then we, we mocked it up and you guys liked it. So that was right. another one. Bizarre, like, isn't mo- it? Moment of clarity in your sleep. And I guess it makes sense because your brain is working all these things out. And we're thinking about the movie constantly. And then and you wake up, boom, there's that idea. So it's just, it's just wild. <laughs> and I really believe in going with those things when you can. Not, yeah. not every, of course, not every idea you have in your dreams is going to be a good one. But the, but the ones that are uncannily re- relevant, it, it wasn't a case of, I'm sure you've had this experience where you have dreams and you're listening to a song that doesn't exist or you're watching a film that doesn't exist and mm-hmm. something that your subconscious has created, then you can't do a whole lot with, with that. But in these instances, they were very tangible things that you and I yeah. used. We, we saw an image, had an idea, saw a comic book cover and or had this idea of an existing song and then it becomes reality. It's a mm-hmm. very puzzling yet satisfying experience to be part of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like I to think, think when those things happen, happen, it's the universe saying, yes, you're on the right track. Just keep right. going the way you're going. This is the clearest signal we're able to send you with the technology that we have. But keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> hmm. Oh, yeah. Follow those signs, people. Yep. Fellow filmmakers out there. Well, do you got anything you want to plug? That's what we usually throw that to people here at the... Last thing, any projects you'd want people yeah, anything to going on? Any, or... Anything you want to plug or tell people about? Oh, thank you. Well, I I just will encourage listeners to to look forward to the love song of William H. Shaw. This is this has been one of the the biggest, most time consuming and <laughs> challenging and brilliant creative projects I've ever worked <laughs> on. So much for our fourteen day shoot that turned into a two and a half year shoot oh, because of kidding. COVID. But this is uh, this would be my primary creative outlet at the moment, I would say. But uh, thanks for asking. Of course, if if uh, any if, if your listeners want to connect with me, I'm very easy to find on social media. I'm Jeff Notkin, G E O F F N O T K I N, on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And my company is Aerolite Meteorites. That's that's my other that's my other job. That's my day job. Oh, don't it's, they make whiskey on the side? Oh yes, like they, make whiskey. Fine, they make a fine whiskey. <laughs> You'll see it in the Revenge of Zoe. That was a case of us filming. We're actually filming, and we've got a bottle of whiskey on the table for Billy. We're, we're filming at the Aerolite office, and yep. and one of you guys said, "Ah, we need to cover up that label quick." And I just reached onto a shelf and pulled an Aerolite sticker up and put it over the whiskey, <laughs> whiskey. label. Yeah, and boom. Yeah. I didn't actually intend that to really be an exact plug for Aerolite, but that's the way it turned out. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's... that was the 
that's the that's the same i was going to say that's the same scene where you created all the box labels too oh yes or all the the alcoholic box labels that show up in both movies too well that was and that was a favorite thing too as well we needed we needed Mm -hmm. boxes of uh, we needed Mm -hmm. beer boxes not not six packs but the the big boxes that multiple six packs come in for the for the opening scene of revenge of zoe for the for the card game scene and our our wonderful friends at plaza liquors in tucson who have helped us with with Zoe and Love Song mm-hmm. provided mm-hmm. kindly provided the boxes and allowed us to shoot in the in their back lot and uh, coming out of the store. So the so the idea there was to was to create fake beer label, fake beer brands, and they're all inspired by cartoonists. So there's mm-hmm. so there's a Jack Kirby real ale. There's a there's a Peeny P I N I yeah yeah uh, Wendy Peeny yeah Richard and Wendy Peeny creators of ElfQuest who are longtime yep. friends of mine. And there's a there's a Neil Adams lager. I yeah, think it's Neil they're, Adams. They're all <laughs> they're all coming. I remember you asking us for 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 yeah. You know, like, do you guys have like a favorite you know thing? Oh, I think right. I said I think I said Neil Adams doing yeah, Neil yeah. Adams. Or and there's a Kurtzman yeah. one as well. There's a Harvey Kurtzman. I think it was Kurtzman Harvey Kurtzman schnapps. If I remember yes. correctly, we really had fun with that. And then we reused them. They made it. They made a, a return appearance in the in the in the scene in love song. Like, like seeing, yeah, like like seeing an old friend again yeah. when you drag over the stair. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Like I remember those. I've seen those before. Oh, I'm glad we kept them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good tip. Well, Jeff, for you, good tip for you filmmakers. If you make a prop that works really well, you might want to throw it in a shed in case you can use it in another yeah, film yeah. later. Yeah, you never know. When just turn just it upside say, down. We're making a sequel. <laughs> I still have that well, black and white frenzy poster. Did you really? <laughs> and it survived two movies in a in a uh, outline trim. <laughs> wow! Because we cut. The well, you can see, you can see Revenge of Zoe right up there next to Night of the Comet. Yeah, that's the real poster there. I did notice that actually while yeah. we were talking, and and uh, listeners won't know we've got a we've got a video connection for the three of us just to uh keep in touch while we're chatting but yeah i saw that very nice pairing of revenge of zoe and night of the comet up there well done Cliff. Yeah, i think i'm kind of i'd like to i you know i like to humor myself and think they're kind of on the same level we're gonna have to make that double feature happen one day i'm, I'm no i'm no tom everhart but who knows <laughs> yeah i can see that we'll make it happen well jeff we appreciate you coming on um, making this sort of like audio history of of the films and stuff. It's been it's been really fun talking to everybody. We don't get to talk to everybody enough, you know. Rachel and Biscuit and Julie's going to be on soon. Yeah. She's pregnant. We you know there's it's just insane how people's <laughs> lives are moving along. So it's we really appreciate you coming on. And, and first off, we we appreciate you just joining us and making films with mm-hmm. us. Like it, you've it's been a whole nother level of a you know Eric was a whole nother level and you were that next other level. So oh, thank you. It's, it's just been fantastic. Well, I, I have so enjoyed the opportunity to be on the podcast. And, and I, as I've said many times to you and, and other people in interviews and just friends, it's been one of the most satisfying creative experiences of my life working with you two. You're, you're so creative and supportive and energetic and fun. You make filmmaking fun. You give, you've given me the opportunity to do things that, that I dreamed of doing and was never able to do. I mean, who gets to make a movie soundtrack with all their favorite bands? Talk about <laughs> dreams coming true. It's almost unbelievable. And, and to sit with you in the Orleans and watch the movie with all, with all that wonderful music that was made by friends of ours. So it, it's been, pretty, it's been amazing. a great journey and we ain't done yet. 
Nope. Yeah, nope. It's getting it's started. Plenty to go with us. Yep. Good stuff. And I do want to get back to that rock and roll movie one of these days. Oh, definitely. And like I said, um, the, the script is online. If you need access to it, if you want to start writing notes or whatever on it, just yeah, let me know. I'll the whole script? Yeah, yeah. It's ready to go. Yeah, yeah. send that I didn't link. Know that. Yeah, if I can send you a link and you can just yeah, start please. You can start noting on it right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've only seen, I think, maybe the first 30 or 40 pages. Oh, oh well, shoot. I'll send that to you as soon as we get out of here, buddy. Fantastic. <laughs> that shall bring me a great deal of musical pleasure. I am quite certain to read this. Wow. Literary work by you two fine gentlemen. Filmmaking <laughs> happening on the podcast. <laughs> yes, you hear that? how about that? We're That's actually... how you get it done, folks. <laughs> Jeez, I didn't know the script was finished. Yes, this you is how we make it be filmed. Yeah, you do business while you're doing business. That's how it gets done around here. <laughs> Multitasking. All right, gentlemen, All right. it's always a pleasure. Thank That's you so much for your out. time, interest, and support. And I look forward to our next adventure. Right on. All the best to you, Jeff Nutkin. Be seeing you. Godspeed, sir. Thank mm-hmm. you.